Let's pray together before we start. Father in heaven, uh, we give you thanks for your son. We're so blessed. You've done so much good for us. We pray now that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you'd give us ears to hear, that you would help us to see who he is, what he's done, understand it and embrace it more deeply today. We pray that it would change our lives, that we might live for him. Amen. Okay, so uh, as far as I can tell, and it seems reasonable to me, that every culture has certain events, stories and expressions uh, that are common knowledge and familiar to the citizens of that culture. I'll say that again. It seems reasonable to me that every culture has certain events, stories and expressions that are common knowledge and familiar to the citizens of that culture. For example, if I said to you, raise your glasses, cut the cake, head to Buckingham. You might think, is there a royal wedding that I'm missing? Obviously, I didn't say anything about a wedding, did I? But we knew enough from those short little phrases. A funnier example comes from a friend of mine who loves the TV series The Office, Apparently, it's a bit of a cult following. It has a bit of a cult following. I personally don't know about it. (laughs) Anyway, what he does is sometimes he will drop a very subtle office allusion into a conversation with somebody that he's just met in order to see if they will pick up on it. Okay? Yeah, some of you are laughing. Perhaps you do the same thing. All right? If they do, then he knows he's found a friend. If not, like when he relates to me, the unfamiliar illusion just slips by them and he carries on with whatever conversation that person in front of him uh, wanted to have. The point is this. Because of this common knowledge of events and expressions, say in this TV series, sometimes not a lot needs to be said in order to say a lot. Right? Not a lot needs to be said in order to say a lot. Sometimes we can simply make an allusion to something and those who know the background can easily join the dots and understand what we're communicating and it's the same for the Bible writers. That's that's what's happening here. The difference between us and the stories that shaped them and the phrases they were familiar with is they're not the same as ours. Theirs were shaped heavily by the Old Testament and so in order for us to understand what Mark's saying... We have to do a little bit of groundwork to find out what things is he alluding to. Because he's drawing a lot on his own Jewish history in these verses. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just appear out of thin air. The story of Jesus is unbreakably connected to the story of what God has been doing in the world from the very beginning. So, what we are going to do 
with the rest of our time this morning, is we'll start by looking at the background of the story that Mark alludes to in order to see who he's telling us Jesus is. And I'll give you the answer. He's telling us that Jesus is the leader Israel has been hoping for. That's what he wants us to see with all the illusions. And then what we'll do is we'll look at what kind of leader Mark wants us to see Jesus is. They're the two things we're going to do this morning together. So firstly, let's see how Mark shows us that Jesus... Is that big enough? Gosh, that's small. It says the promised leader. That Jesus is the promised leader. This might feel a little bit technical, this part, but it's necessary for our understanding, so let's work together in it, especially if you're new. Now, can I just throw out at this point, sidebar, an encouragement to read the scriptures, right? We're not going to spot what the New Testament writers are doing if we don't read the Old Testament scriptures, right? We get to read the Word of God. Most of us here can read, and most of us do read other things. I find that one of the things that daunts me the most about reading the Bible is a self-imposed expectation that I should understand every part of it and be instantly inspired by it. But I find that the reality of reading the Bible is more often not like that. But, and this is a huge but, What can the Holy Spirit use if we have not even got the content in our hearts and minds in the first place? I find that the Holy Spirit brings understanding at all kinds of different times and he will remind me of certain scriptures, not just for me, but for others at appropriate times, but he can do this because they're there. Read anything. And be surprised what the Holy Spirit will do for the hungry heart. That's just a little pause there and a plug. Let's read our Bibles. And we'll get way more out of the New Testament when we do so as well. Right. So, back to Mark. And Mark is alluding to the Old Testament. And he's alluding to two things in particular. Right. First background is he's alluding to Moses and the Exodus. What are the illusions, you say? Well, here they are. The first is, uh, in verse 31, we have the word, we have this little phrase, quiet place. In verse 32, we have a solitary place. And in verse 35, we have a remote place. All of those words translate one word that at the beginning of the gospel was translated wilderness. The idea is, they're in a wilderness place. But it sounds weird to say that in English, so we write these words. Right? And the Israelites famously were led in the wilderness for 40 years. Right? In this wilderness place that they're in, in our story, the people are miraculously fed with a bunch of bread. Sound familiar? Yes, that's because that's exactly what happened to Israel in the wilderness. 40 years miraculously fed with bread. Not only that, but in the next section where our heading says Jesus walks on water, Jesus goes up the mountain by himself, reminiscent of Moses 
who, while they were in the wilderness and at Mount Sinai, would go up the mountain by himself. Then, in 45 to 52, we have the second of uh, the miraculous sea crossings that that have occurred between chapter 4 and chapter 8. We get sea crossings in Mark. They're not there just because that happened to be the nicest thing to record. They're there because they're real historical events, but they're significant historical events. They were miraculous sea crossings. Sound familiar? Yes. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they had a miraculous sea crossing through the Red Sea. None of these things are here by accident. Then they sit in groups of hundreds and fifties. We see that in verse 40. Now, it's not a precise word match, but it sounds like, and especially in this context where there are lots of other Exodus themes, it sounds like the way the Israelites were arranged when Moses was leading them. Moses broke them into groups of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and distributed the responsibility among chosen men to provide better leadership. That sounds like what's happening here as Jesus distributes the bread. And not only that, but at the, in verse 52, it says that the disciples' hearts were hardened. Now, there's one guy in the Bible with a hard heart that's like big, major character in the Bible. He's like the guy with the hard heart. And that's Pharaoh, right? Okay, loads and loads and loads of allusions here. It's packed. And we're supposed to feel, when we read it, ah, Exodus, ah, Moses, ah, Red Sea, mountain, what's going on? But there's more. When Jesus gets out of the boat and sees the crowd, Mark tells us that Jesus has compassion on them because they were, what? Like sheep without a shepherd. That's verse 34. You see that there? Verse 34, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now that's not just a nice turn of phrase. This is, this is a direct quotation from Moses' very own mouth in Numbers chapter 27, verse 17, which is while Israel is still in the wilderness. And in that context, Moses has just been told by the Lord that he himself will not enter the promised land because he failed to obey the Lord in one of his instructions. And so Moses is thinking about the future leadership of the people of God. And I'll read from verse 15. Moses said to the Lord, this is verse 15 in Numbers 27. You don't need to turn there. You can look it up in your home groups. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's people will not be like a sheep, sorry, like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So when Jesus goes on to provide for these people in our story this morning, we are supposed to see Jesus being the Joshua-type leader in whom is the Spirit who will lead the people into the promised new creation. We're supposed to see all of that. But there's more. And so I want to quickly show us a second background. To be honest, at one point I thought there is so much background here, I don't know where to start and where to end. But I'll give us one more. Okay? The second one 
is this idea of bad shepherds and a good King David shepherd. And we get that from uh, the prophet Ezekiel. So again, in the Old Testament scriptures, Ezekiel was a prophet. Uh, He prophesied towards um, uh, the period of Israel's history just before, sorry, just while they were um, in exile in Babylon. So they'd been a nation for a considerable period of time. Um, And he is prophesying. And I'm going to paraphrase chapter 34 because it's just too long. And so I've kind of made a mashup here. Um, and it said, this is what it says, but I've grabbed out the important bits. We have something like this. <clears throat> Ezekiel kind of says, The Lord says that he is against the shepherds of Israel. That's the leaders, the kings. Because they have not looked after the sheep. You have taken care of yourselves. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Therefore I will rescue my sheep from you so that you will no longer eat them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. That's like a prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 34. When's that going to happen? What's that all about? Now, what did we just see in the last chapter? If you remember from the previous sermon, we saw Herod, a leader in Israel. And Mark calls him a king. Technically, he's he's not a king, but he acts like a king. And so it's suitable for Mark to call him that. And what's he doing? He's feeding himself. And what's the only dish that we saw at that meal? on the Baptist's head. They didn't actually eat it, but it's like they're eating the people. Right? Herod has just been doing exactly what the Lord said the shepherd kings of Israel shouldn't have been doing. He just kind of captures those bad kings. A selfish and brutal king serving his own interests at the expense of the people. And then straight away, in contrast to that bad shepherd... And that bad meal, we have this shepherd and this meal. They're the illusions. And through these illusions, what's Mark saying? Mark is trying to get get to our attention in a big way that this Jesus, who you read about in this gospel, is the shepherd king we have been waiting for. He's the leader, like Moses and Joshua who will lead us in another exodus out of our spiritual slavery and into the promised land of the new creation. That's what's happening. That's what Jesus is doing. This is happening. It's all here. Not only that, he's the David we've been waiting for. He's the shepherd king that the Lord promised us through Ezekiel the prophet, who will heal us, look for us, Rescue us from our enemies. Feed us and care for us. This is it. This is the moment, Mark's saying. This Jesus is the guy. 
It's a miraculous story, to be sure, but it's not just about 5,000 hungry bellies being filled. This is about God's great promises of rescue and good leadership being fulfilled. If we had the kind of expectation of Israel and understood all the kind of implications that this has, that this guy has arrived, perhaps we would feel the size of the moment. That's one thing that Mark wants us to see, but that's not where I want to dwell now. You can do that in your home groups and think about, right, this moment of of, um, fulfilment has happened. What I want to focus on is on what kind of leader Mark wants us to see. Right? So Jesus is the leader that we have been waiting for, but what kind of leader is he? What aspects of Jesus does Mark draw our attention to? And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Firstly, he draws attention to Jesus, a compassionate leader. Jesus comes off the boat, and what does he see? He sees the people. Defeated, leaderless, vulnerable. These are the things that sheep without a shepherd are. Sheep without a shepherd are in great danger. Danger from others and danger from ourselves. When we have a bad leader, we're in danger. When we have no leader, we're also in danger. And this is a critical part of the gospel, to understand the gospel story and understand Jesus and his mission, is if we don't see our need for a perfect king who will guide us and care for us with the justice and wisdom of God, then we're missing out on a truth about ourselves. If we don't see ourselves on our own as a people in trouble, then we are missing a truth about ourselves. History gathers a lot of evidence against us. The trap is to think that we're better now, we're smarter now, we're different now, we're more ethical now than we used to be. I think there's an arrogance in that view. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, briefly, and he says that perhaps we look back on past ages and sigh at their savagery. A harsh and cruel people, we might say. But then he asks, and perhaps, but then he asks how they might view us. If we have championed kindness, we are shocked at their savagery. But they might see our lack of courage and integrity and be equally shocked We are weak, they might say. We don't confront. We hide behind inaction in the name of love, but it's really only masking cowardice. And so behind closed doors, we express our true feelings and reveal that we lack integrity, transparency, and courage. Or in other words, we're hypocritical cowards, 
So why did we elevate one virtue over another virtue? And more interestingly, why do we elevate the virtue we consider ourselves good at over the other virtues? Probably because we're good at making ourselves right. But Jesus sees reality. And Jesus sees the people like this, like sheep without a shepherd, lost, in danger, confused, and he's compassionate. This is the most untimely moment for Jesus, isn't it? Right? When I'm hungry, okay, so let's think about the moment. What has he just said to his disciples? We haven't been able to eat. We're so busy, not even able to eat. Let's get away by ourselves for a little while and have, have a quiet time together. So they cross over on the boat. Crowd runs around, beats them there. They come out of the boat and they're tired already and hungry. They're literally going there to get away. And then there's all these people. And they're needy. Right? Now, if that was me, when I'm hungry and tired and have been busy working then without the power of the Spirit, my instinct is not toward compassion. I'll be honest. Right? I, I see that and I think, seriously? Now? At all times. Of all the times that you could be here, do you need to be here now? We need to eat too, guys. Don't you realise? We're people but not Jesus. Jesus is compassionate. And you see the depth of his compassion in moments like that. In moments when it's hard, in moments where there was inconvenient for him, Jesus' compassion wins out over the needy people. The Jesus that you know, what is his heart like towards your need? When you look up in your mind's eye, do you see a Jesus who is compassionate toward you? Or do you see a Jesus who is irritated that you don't get your act together? Let's make sure we've got the right Jesus. Oh, that our hearts would see the right Jesus, compassionate toward us. And it's not like he's, it's a light thing. Here in England, sometimes we have this way of saying, oh, bless. Oh, bless. Bless. Look at that crowd. Bless. That's not it. That's not right. We haven't got that right, have we? That's not what he's doing. He's actually moved with compassion. He's compassionate. He feels it in his gut. Look at these people. They're in need. And it's not just an empty sympathy either. It's compassion that leads to action. 
And so he becomes a leader who doesn't just feel for our need, but provides for our need. And so Jesus goes on to teach. And the most important thing he teaches them is through this miracle. And the key here is that we see the events as a living parable. It's a lesson through these real-life events. Through this miracle, Jesus shows that he is the kind of leader who provides life for his people by giving them his broken life. How do we see that? Well, we need to just think about a couple of things. Firstly, what does food do? If you don't have food, what do you do? You die. If you do have food, generally speaking, what do you do? You live. Food sustains. Food gives life. And that's just what Jesus gives to the hungry people. But there's something that Jesus does with the bread before he gives it out, and they're four words, and they're very important words, because all the gospel writers use these words in connection with this event. Uh, Asterix, I haven't checked John. (laughs) I didn't want to say synoptics, but let's go with it now. Right, so in verse 41, these are the four things, right? Verse 41, he takes the five loaves, he gives thanks, he breaks, and he gives. And these words might not seem like a lot here, but by the time we get to the end of the book, we realize what these words mean, and they shed light back on the significance of this event. Later on in the book, at the Passover meal, which, if you don't know, was a festival that the Jews would celebrate every year, and it was a festival to commemorate what? The Exodus coming out of Egypt, right? Oh, hold on, there are some Exodus themes here. Ah, okay. Maybe this has got something to do with that new Exodus that God has been talking about, that new rescue, that rescue that's deeper than the rescue from the physical slavery in Egypt and the rescue that rescues us from our sin. And Jesus uses those same words, and again, the synoptic writers get this, to describe the bread at the meal. But at that meal, he says that the bread is his body. That's where he gives us that clue. And it's broken because that's a picture of what Jesus will undergo on the cross. The point of this power of this of these events are that Jesus is the miraculous small meal that gets broken and gives eternal life for many needy people. So he provides, and he doesn't just provide a little bit. We have to see what Mark and the other writers all want to pick up on as well. There's a couple of phrases that they just don't miss. And another one is that everyone ate and was satisfied. And that matters. Because that's part of what they're trying to say. It just feels like such a gospel phrase, doesn't it? Everyone ate and was satisfied. It's everyone 
It's wide and it's full. It's deep. The offer of Jesus, why is that? It's because the offer of Jesus is for as many as who will hear. If your soul is hungry and you know it, then Jesus is for you. It's wide and nobody is off limits. If your life is empty from all the wrong things you've done, the bad choices you've made, then Jesus is for you because he fills full. He fills because he covers everything. He covers every need. All your sins, his broken body in your place. Any fears in life or death, his resurrection offered as your resurrection. Any hope for the future or sense of despair, his eternal home being made ready for all who hope in him. Everyone full, because that's a picture of the gospel. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For hungry people, Jesus satisfies our every need and gives us life. And he does it by providing his broken life. Now we could end there, but there's something that we've missed. And that is, Jesus is the leader, he's the shepherd king who provides for us. But he's not just any shepherd king. He's the divine shepherd king. He's not just the promised son of David who will rule his people. In Jesus, God has come to care for his people. Very quickly, I just want us to see that so that I'm just not making it up, right? I want to get it from somewhere. Firstly is people don't just walk on water. Right, You can spend all the ink you you like on describing how he might have been walking beside the sea or on a sandbank or some other way to kind of demystify uh, what's written here. That would be a waste of time. He walks on the water. People don't do it. That's the point. And one of the key backgrounds, again, as we've already noted, is the Exodus. And I'm going to go out on a limb... Commentators are divided, so I'll just make that little sidebar. I think it's clear enough, and you can make your own mind up as well. Exodus is in the background. Jesus has just been up on a mountain, and here's something that happens. Jesus is walking on the water, and did anyone notice that weird phrase, how Jesus is going to pass them by? Why? It actually says that, if you're going to read the ESV or the CSB, it says he was, he was intending to pass them by. That's a weird thing to do. And why would Mark pick up on that? But here's the thing. Moses goes up a mountain and he asks the Lord to show him his glory. Right? And the Lord says, I'll pass by and you'll see my back 
I'll show you my glory. In Kings, Elijah's up on a mountain, and when he gets a revelation of God, also the Lord passes by. So I don't think, I don't think it's an insignificant phrase, personally. I think there's significance here. Not only that, but you can add Job 9 to the background. Job's marveling at God, at how he, can, he could never stand before God. He could never make a case before God. God is the one who tramples on the sea. And then he says, and even if he passed by me, I wouldn't recognize him. I see something there. And so then what happens is they call out, they're afraid. And Jesus turns around, and this is what he says. He says in our text, it is I. Now, this is, but what he says is, he says in another, uh, in in John's gospel, it's exactly the same phrase where it's get translated occasionally, um, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It would be a legitimate way to translate that. Now, I know this sounds a little bit technical. I think the reason probably why they haven't gone on to do that, the reason I say this now is because I don't want to undermine your confidence in the English translations we have. They're very good. I'm just saying on this point, I think, and probably why they don't do it that way is they say, okay, well, there's a number of illusions, but how much weight are we going to do it and are we going to decide at this point that we're actually going to um, translate it as I am because that's a pretty pretty big call to make and if there's any... um, If some people are leaning the other way, they might not do it. Okay, so with that said, I think I see enough illusions here, I see enough going on, that when that phrase gets written, I'm ready to read it as him saying, I am. Because Jesus is the Lord passing by. He's revealing God. And and I think we're meant to see all of that here as we see Jesus, the shepherd king. I've already established in previous sermons that Jesus is really a man, but he's not just a man. He's God. And when we see Jesus compassionate towards the people, that's not just another nice leader. This is God's heart towards the people. When we see Jesus caring for the people, it's not just a man caring for the people. This is God caring for the people, coming to save his people. Perhaps you noticed it in Ezekiel, where where you're like, who's going to come and shepherd the people? The Lord says, I myself will come and shepherd my people, and I will set over them one shepherd, David. And you're like, well, who's going to be the shepherd? Precisely. Is God going to shepherd the people? Or is Jesus going to shepherd the people? Yes, because Jesus shepherding the people is the Lord shepherding his people. This is the Son of God coming to save his people by giving his life for them. That's what we have before us. What does this mean for us? Two very brief points. Perhaps you recognize the need for a leader in your life, one who teaches truth, one who has compassion on you, and most importantly, one who provides for your greatest need by giving his life for your sins. 
The way to respond is to submit to the king, to live under his rule, and to receive his provision of life. It's a free gift. You don't and can't earn it. And you don't clean up your life before you come to him, like the bread that was given to the crowd. You just receive it. Or, perhaps you haven't thought a huge amount about Jesus leading your life. This is what struck me this week and what I've been marinating on. Is to what extent do I think of Jesus as my shepherd and as my leader, as my king? And to what extent does Jesus being my shepherd provide comfort for me? How much do I love Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. To what extent does Jesus as my leader provide guidance for my day-to-day life? And to what extent do I see myself needing a leader? Or am I too self-sufficient? There's a couple of points to think about for this week. This is the gospel. That's what we've heard this morning. The promised king who, out of compassion, saves and satisfies a lost, defeated people by giving them his broken life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your provision of your son. Thank you for the rescue that he provides for us delivering us from our slavery to sin. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you're our leader, that you're a compassionate leader, that you provide for us, that you've made a provision for our greatest need. And we want to live for you. We want to walk in your ways. And we want to know more about you. Please help us by the power of your spirit. Amen.